It is good to be able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good in several ways, but in particular, what I want to mention this morning, it's good to know that we are worshiping one who is alive. We are not simply acknowledging something that happened in the past. It's not something simply that's in our memory. It's not simply commemorating as in a memorial for someone who was in our midst. But rather, we we join together to celebrate one who is alive. And not only alive, but well and alive. One who is very much with us. And his name is Jesus Christ. And the reason he is very much with us is because he is God. He's not simply a man, but he is the man God. He is the eternal God who took on flesh, and he took on flesh for a very particular purpose. He took on flesh in order to identify himself with mankind, and in identifying with mankind, he was able to die on behalf of man. Why would he have to die on behalf of man? Well, because we are sinners. And what Jesus Christ did was die in order to pay for the price of our sins. For the penalty of sin is eventual death. And Jesus Christ takes on that death in our place. That is the beauty of Christ. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the message of Christianity. And in terms of religions, it's the only religion that would profess such a truth. And so this morning, we look at the tomb of Jesus Christ, and we could say that, in a sense, the keys of the tomb were hanging on the inside. After the crucifixion, Christ was entombed. And just as he said he would, he laid there for three days. Not three full days. There was a part of Friday, the full day Saturday, and a part of Sunday. Three days. Just as he said he would, he resurrected on the third day. But as we read in the four Gospels, all of the disciples, and I'm not not referring just to the twelve, but to all those people who were following after him, not just dozens, but hundreds and even thousands of people, they were amazed when they heard that Jesus Christ resurrected. As we saw in the Gospels, The ones who came to the tomb were amazed that the tomb was empty. No one really expected Jesus Christ to resurrect, even though he said he would. I wonder how many of us would have believed him. Probably not many, if any. We would have said, well, that's a nice thought, that's a kind thought. Thanks for being so uh, willing to comfort me in my distress when I consider the fact that you are going to die on a cross, Jesus But secretly in my heart, I really don't believe you're going to come back from the dead in three days. So they were amazed. I think we would be as well. Christ was arrested. He was executed. But the truth is, is that Christ was actually the warden of his own death. And he carried the keys by which he would escape the power of death to keep him dead. And so in the scriptures we read, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your power? And in the case of Christ, that power of death to keep Christ dead is eliminated. And what we discover is that because Christ resurrected, we can as well. That's 
one of the beauties of the gospel message. That we do not have to be eternally disembodied. Well, I'll explain that more as we move on. As the giver of life, Jesus Christ resurrects, regains his life. And the tomb was opened. Not so that Jesus Christ could come out of the tomb, out of the grave. The tomb was opened so that his disciples could look in and see that it was empty. And indeed it was. There was a man by the name of Josephus in antiquity. He was a historian. One generation after Jesus Christ. And Josephus wrote volumes about the events of that day and age. And Josephus gives to us a great amount of understanding about what happened in the days of Jesus Christ. Uh, he has conveyed many historical facts, both religious and secular, um, referring to glimpses of particular episodes in history. And when we read Josephus, we understand a great deal about what happened in those days. And mind you, nobody questions the writings of Josephus. His full name was Flavius Josephus. He was a historian, but he was also a Jewish priest. Josephus was not a Christian man. And this is what he writes about the resurrection. For those of you who are going to look him up, it's the Jewish Antiquities, volume 18. I say that because my son actually read it. And maybe there's some people here like my son who has a copy and wants to go out and read it. I encourage you to. This is what Josephus writes. About this time appeared Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it is right to call him a man, for he was a worker of astonishing deeds, a teacher of such who received the truth with joy. And he drew to himself many Jews, many Greeks also. This was the Christ. Now keep in mind, when he uses the word Christ, it means Messiah. He, this was the Messiah, is what Josephus writes. Then he goes on and says, And when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor overseeing the crucifixion of Christ, and when Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who had first loved him did not abandon him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. The holy prophets having foretold this and countless other marvels about him. The tribe of Christians named after him did not cease to this day. Just the facts written by the secular historian. Well, let me give to you this morning four reasons why Jesus Christ absolutely had to resurrect. Now, just four out of many, I'm going to give you only those four. What I'm going to do is give you a particular passage in the Bible and then a reason why Jesus Christ had to resurrect. And my hope is that in explaining these reasons why Christ had to resurrect, you, your soul, will be fed. You will be encouraged. And you'll walk out of here this morning understanding, oh, how good it is to be able to say that I serve a risen Savior, that Christ is no longer dead. And here's the first one. Jesus Christ had to resurrect in order to guarantee the resurrection, our resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus Christ had to resurrect in order to guarantee that we too would resurrect from the dead. In the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 5, this is what we read. For if we have become united with Christ, with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If you have been united with Christ in his death, certainly you will also be united with him in his resurrection. My friends, the resurrection was proof of who Jesus Christ is. It was God's proof that the death of Jesus Christ was completely able to absorb the wrath of God. As Jesus Christ hung on a cross, all of the wrath of God was poured onto Christ for the sins of the world. It wasn't a wrath against Christ. He had no sin. It was a sin of those who would believe in him. So Jesus Christ, like a sponge on a cross, absorbed the wrath of God. We call this propitiation. It's a good sound though, isn't it? (laughs) Poor little guy. If he only knew what was ahead of him, (laughs) he's got a lot of years still. (laughs) Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of those who would believe in Christ. And so the death of Christ was a substitutionary death. He died in your place. So that you would not have to pay eternally for your own sins. And we call that, theologically, the term is propitiation. The wrath of God was appeased. The wrath of God was satisfied. It was not ignored. It was spent on Jesus Christ. And that's why from the cross, Jesus Christ cried, Why have you forsaken me? And eventually Jesus Christ said, It is finished. Not my life is finished, but my job is now complete. What I came for is now finished. But in the resurrection, when Christ comes to life again, God the Father is also speaking. And he is saying, it is finished indeed. The work of Christ has been accepted The work of Christ is completed fully. There's nothing more to be added, nothing more to be done. What Christ has done is all sufficient. If our sins are paid for, my friends, then the righteousness of Christ is provided to you. If your sins are paid for, then forgiveness is afforded. Justice is satisfied. Then nothing more can keep Christ or the people of Christ in the grave. If Christ resurrects, then you too will eventually be resurrected into an eternal life in the presence of God. Aren't you glad this is not the whole of it? It may be good. Maybe for you it has not been good. 
but I assure you this is not the whole of it. Resurrection is promised to all those who are in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 says, I was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Those are the words of Christ. I was dead and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades referring to hell, the place of death. Christ resurrected in order to secure our our resurrection just as he secured his own. And again and again throughout the scriptures, we read about the resurrection. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. It's a beautiful truth. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and become a child of Christ, when we place our faith in Christ and come to him and repent and believe, when we forfeit our lives over to God, we actually are then dying to ourselves, but living in Christ, for Christ. Those who die with him will also live with him. You know, Thomas Watson lived many, many years ago. He was quite the preacher. And he said this, We are more sure to rise up from our graves than out of our beds. You know, every day I go to bed and I figure in about eight hours I'm going to be getting up again and starting all over again. And you do likewise. We anticipate getting up the next morning, right? It's very few of us have ever said, I wonder if I'm going to get up in the morning. And lo and behold, you did. It's pretty much guaranteed. It's not 100%, but it has worked so far. Thomas Watson says, you know, just as sure as you are that you're getting up tomorrow morning and starting the week, you can be even more sure that the Christian will resurrect. Those who are in Christ will resurrect. This, my friends, is a central truth to the Christian faith. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if there is no resurrection of Christ or of us, then we as Christians are the greatest fools and to be pitied most. You would be wasting your time right now if there were no resurrection of Christ or the promise of the resurrection of every believer. We should be pitied. You could be sleeping right now. Some of you are. No, you're not. (laughs) Everybody's awake. I see you. Those who believe will not be sentenced to an everlasting living death but will receive the joy of eternal life in the presence of God. His resurrection rescues us from his final judgment. And he secures our resurrection by first resurrecting himself. And he invites you, by the way. He invites you to participate in his resurrection, to be united with him when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And he says, come, come to me. 
in faith, give your life to me. And you too can know eternal life. That's the first reason why Christ had to resurrect, so that we would resurrect as well. Secondly, Christ had to resurrect, absolutely had to, in order to unleash the power of the gospel. He had to resurrect in order to unleash the power of the gospel. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18, we read these words. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But you know very well how foolish it is. You know, I like getting into conversations with people I don't know. Um, you stand in line and start up a conversation. Um, you run into people who um, you don't know well. You say, how are, how are you? It's usually I'm in the supermarket or whatever. And we start chatting. But what, what I've discovered is that um, when the conversation comes around to, so what do you do for a living? I know that when I say I'm a minister of the Church of Christ, the conversation ends. They say, oh, look at the time. i got to get going. <laughs> They're afraid that I'm going to try to save their soul. Or they're afraid that I'm going to poke them in the eye and make them feel guilty over their sins. They're afraid that I'm going to invite them to church. So I know it's going to kill the conversation, so I avoid the question. But eventually, it comes out. And the reason why people are, well, not really willing to talk about the things of God, is because it is foolishness to them. You know, our church here is a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a kind of an odd name. It means free of government intervention, because where we come from in Europe, the government had a lot of say as to what the church uh, preached and who was a member of the church. And so when it came over to America, it became Evangelical Free. We get to... to choose what we're going to preach, and who's a part of us, right? But today, you know, if you have to explain it, you get rid of it, right? Um, so so we, we value our history, but when people see evangelical free church, uh, they say, what does that mean? I remember one little girl who said, well, after taking an offering, she said, I thought you guys were free. <laughs> but I remember speaking to a neighbor who had just moved in and I happened to be walking down the street and I said, well, let me say hi to the neighbor and we started up a conversation and of course then she said, um, she said, well, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, here it goes. It's going to be the end of the conversation and indeed it was. She got so upset, she turned around and went back to her gardening and then she said, well, I guess I'm being rude, to which I agreed. So, well, I guess I'm being rude. I should at least ask you what church and I said, the local evangelical free church. And she said, well, at least you're free of evangelicals. <laughs> We're not free of evangelicals. Evangelicals are simply Bible-believing people. Evangelical means you believe the gospel, the evangel. Um, evangelicals are not a right-wing political movement, although that's what many people think. No, the true meaning of evangelical is a word coined by Martin Luther, the reformer, and it means Bible-believing, and that's who we are. But for many people, that is foolishness. 
The scriptures tell us very clearly here in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And they're perishing because they don't, they don't believe the very gospel that they think is so foolish. But for those who are being saved by this gospel truth, it is the power of God. It is the power to give you life. It is the power to resurrect you. It is the power to transform you. It is the power to give you purpose. It is the power to give you meaning in life. It is the power to give you the answers to the big questions people ask. It is the power to take you out of darkness to light. The gospel is super powerful. The word gospel means good news. Simply, good news. Before it means religion, before it means church, before it means theology, the term gospel means good news. And here's the good news. That Jesus Christ died for us. And he resurrected. Both. You can't have one and not the other. That's the good news. At the cross, at his death, Jesus Christ conveyed the depth of his love for you. But with his resurrection, he displays his power for you. He displays the power that he has. Let me read to you six verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I alluded to it earlier. If you want to follow, I'm in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 6. This is how it reads. Beginning of verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they have died. My friends, I want you to see here that the gospel is based not on rumors, not on religious myth, but on historic fact. Hundreds saw the crucified Christ being crucified. Hundreds, if not thousands, witnessed the crucifixion. It is understood and not questioned by historians that Christ went to the cross. But I want you to see that literally hundreds as well saw the resurrected Christ. Hundreds were witnesses of the fact that Jesus Christ rose again. In fact, many that were at the cross and saw the dying Christ saw the resurrected Christ with the same eyes. But this is foolishness to those who do not believe. Thus, they don't believe. But to those who know what it means to be saved what it means to be redeemed by Christ. To them, 
The gospel is the very power that is saving them. Saving them from the judgment of God who hates sin. My friends, God is not a hateful God, but you see, love requires hate. I love my wife, and therefore I hate anything that would oppose or offend her, or threaten her. True love requires hate, and God truly loves what is holy, what is pious, what is pure. He truly loves his own. And because of that deep love, he hates what is wrong, evil, or sinful. Why do some people see the gospel as good news and others see it as ignorance or downright stupidity? Well, the Bible speaks to that. Stay there in 1 Corinthians, rather 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just one book over. This is Paul's letter to the people in Corinth, a church there in the city of Corinth. It was like uh, New York City of its time. And chapter 4, verse 4 reads this way. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The God of this world has blinded them, their eyes so that they will not be able to see. You go down two more verses to verse 6. It says there that the one who spoke light into existence is the one who shines the light of knowledge of the glory of Christ into our hearts. So it is God who gives you the ability to see and understand and appreciate and embrace the truth, the gospel. My friends, you are welcome here always. But let me say this, if you do not know this light, if you do not know the salvation of Christ, if you wonder whether or not you will one day resurrect into eternal life, then do this, ask God, pray to God, Lord, show me. Show me what it means to go from death to life, from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, what it means to embrace the resurrected Christ. Show me, Lord. Give me that life. I want that life. Begin there simply by asking him. And then let's talk and see where where God leads you. I think I know. Pray that God would enable you to see and embrace the gospel of Christ. Here's a third reason why Jesus Christ had to resurrect. He absolutely had to. Number three, to gather all his sheep from around the world. Christ resurrected so that he, as the good shepherd, would gather all his people, all his sheep, from around the world and throughout history. They're going to be gathered all together. Who does this? The living Christ. For generations since the beginning of time, Christ has been pardoning men of their of their sin. And he's been doing this not based on their good deeds, which makes human common sense, doesn't it? But we're not talking here about human common sense. We're talking about divine determination. God has determined that he would rescue people by grace. He does not depend on you being good enough. If he did, none of us would be good enough. Not even the best among us. 
You see, God is not a temperamental God who's chirpy today and who knows tomorrow he just might be angry and, and, and bitter. Who knows what he's going to do tomorrow. By the way, that is Allah, the, the God of Islam. You never know what he's going to be like today, but God is a constant. God is consistent. And he has determined that he would save us, not because of what we deserve, but because of what he chooses to give to us. Now keep in mind, he's a God that is good. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice as well. And so he gives to us what we do not deserve. We call that grace. And he does all this based on the atonement and propitiation. Two theological terms. Atonement means that he has simply, Jesus Christ has simply paid the price. He has atoned for the wrong that we commit. We're all very familiar with the concept of atonement. You know, if my son throws a baseball, or better yet, kicks a soccer ball through your window, I'm going to come over and atone for the cost of that window. I'm going to pay you for that price. I'm going to get it repaired for you. Christ did that for us. We sinned against the Father, and he has atoned for our sins. Once again, he has provided propitiation, meaning that all the wrath and justice of God the Father, instead of being poured on us, was poured on Christ at the cross. He absorbed it. Propitiation. Before the cross, in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ had actually come, God was making a people to himself. And these people were those who believed in the one who was to come, in the Messiah and the Christ that was yet to come and die on the cross. We live on the other side of the cross. We live in the New Testament. And we believe in the one who's not coming, but who has come. They placed their faith in the one who was yet to come. We place our faith in the same person who has already come. Whatever the case, we are the people of God. Then and now. And God is working as the resurrected Christ, as the good shepherd. He is working to gather all his sheep together. His sheep who are grazing in his field, in his pastures, collecting us all together. And so we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 16, the following. Christ is speaking, and he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, referring to the people of Israel. I have sheep that go beyond the nation of Israel. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. That's us. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You know, sometimes in the scriptures, God refers to us as his sheep. Sometimes he calls us his children. Sometimes he calls us the church. Sometimes he says, you are my disciples. Often he calls us his saints. That all means the same thing. And all over the world, there are people chosen by him, waiting to come to him. He sends his church to go and make disciples. But what I find beautiful about the call of Christ is that as he calls us to go and make disciples, he goes ahead of us. And he prepares them to hear the gospel. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 9 that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Before the workers are sent out, 
the harvest is ready. And who readies the harvest? Well, God himself. Now all it takes is for you to go out and speak the gospel. So that those whom he has prepared would hear, believe. And John chapter 6 verse 37 records these words from Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They're beautiful truths. The resurrection makes it possible for God to aggressively and sovereignly reach across the globe, gathering his sheep together as the good shepherd. And he calls you to come, come to him. And then he calls you to go, go from him and make disciples. Come to him for salvation, go in his name and make disciples. Gather together the sheep of the risen Savior. And here's the fourth reason why Christ had to resurrect. Are you still with me? Yeah. The fourth reason is located in Galatians 2.20. The resurrection enables us to live by faith in God. He had to resurrect in order that we would live by faith in a living Savior. Galatians 2.20 is kind of a difficult verse to understand. You have to read it in, in portions and slowly. Uh, let me read it to you and then I'll break it down for you. It reads this way. I have been crucified with Christ. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing, correct? But he's speaking for himself, but not just for himself. He's speaking for all those who are in Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I li now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we have a paradox there. A paradox is a, a statement that seems to be contradictory. It seems to oppose itself, and yet it is still true. And here is the paradox. Paul writes about the Christian, I have been crucified. In other words, I have died. I have been crucified but now I live. I died, but now I live. And, and I who died, and an I who still lives. And that's because as Christians, when we come to Christ, the old self dies. But when we come to Christ, a new self is created. A new self is raised up. I like how John Piper describes it. He says, The aim of the death of Jesus Christ was to take our old self with him into the grave and put an end to the old self. Romans 6.6 6 says it better. Knowing this, writes the Apostle Paul, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You know, we watch the news maybe every day. Maybe you listen. Maybe you're a news junkie. But I'm pretty sure that you walk away from the newspaper, the internet, or the TV shaking your head saying, I can't believe this is the world we live in. It is frightening, isn't it? 
whether you're listening to Reuters explain what's happening in Ukraine or you're watching what's happening in Manhattan. Whatever the case, it is ugly. It is frightening. But please understand this. The reason why it's ugly and frightening is just a three-letter word. S-I-N. Sin. Take away sin and you'll take away all these troubles. Take away the sinner and you will have no one there to sin. What Christ has done is not just forgiven us our our sins, he has enabled us to stop sinning. Now, none of us here have perfected that, and you probably will not. But certainly, but certainly, our sins are not what they used to be. As little by little, day after day, we learn to say no to the flesh, No to those sinful desires. We mortify the flesh and say yes to God. The world around us becomes a better place. Certainly we sleep better. Certainly our families appreciate us more. Because we are no longer enslaved to sin. The beauty of heaven will be twofold. One, we'll be in the presence of God. And two, we will no longer be in the presence of sin. There will be no sin in heaven. In fact, there will be no desire to sin in heaven. We will will be truly righteous. My friends, here we see in Galatians 2 that the aim of the resurrection is that as a new person, I would now trust the one who is alive. Who is this new self that God creates? By faith? Am I still me? Oh, absolutely. Ask my wife. So what's the difference? I continue to be me, but but I become a new me. A new me that is defined, not by how I used to be, but defined now by Christ in me. Me in Christ. Christ now leads me. Christ now lives in me. Christ's law now reigns over me. Christ's help is with me. Christ is imparting life to me. I am united with Christ so that I will be in Christ, so that Christ empowers the new me. Christ's mind is now in me. Christ's desires now reign in me. Christ rules over me. Therefore, you benefit when Christ is with me. And I benefit when Christ is in you. I can now live by faith as I trust in him from day to day. There are a few examples. I say few, tongue in cheek. There are many examples in the scriptures. I'll give you two. Philippians 4.13 is one. There in Philippians 4.13 we read, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because I'm a new me. Romans 15, 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You see, the new me in Christ is not only transformed, but he's able to do, to live a life worthy of Christ. New self, 
That's what a Christian is. He is Christ-inhabited, Christ-sustained, Christ-strengthened, Christ-led. And so Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, at the very end, says this, The life I now live by faith in God, who loved me and gave himself for me. is a life that I live by faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we are enabled to live by faith. The Christian comes to Christ by faith. I believe that this is true. And then the Christian lives from day to day believing that it is true. Lives by faith. From moment to moment. Uh, You see, the, the, the Christian life is not simply what you believe. It's not just what you believe. The Christian life is also who you become. It's how you live, resulting in your experiencing of God. It's what Joe said earlier on when he opened our worship service. He, he, he spoke about experiencing, about encountering God. The Christian life is not just about what Christ will do for me. It's about knowing Christ, about knowing God, encountering him from moment to moment, day after day. The resurrected Christ. Not the story of a man who died, but the reality of the man who died and resurrected. Christ resurrected so that we would live by faith. You know, having said all that, I can say this in closing. That the ultimate reason why Christ resurrected was so that eventually, ultimately, he would be crowned with all glory and honor. After all, he's God. He deserves it. Christ ultimately resurrected so that he would receive all glory, Lord, and honor. And one day this will happen. It happens sporadically now, but one day it will ultimately and finally happen. And this world will be a footstool for Jesus Christ. All knees will bow down to Jesus Christ, willingly or unwillingly. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we read that God will put a new spirit within us and cause us to walk by his statutes, by his principles. There will be that one day in which everyone who is in his presence will be transformed fully and completely. And our greatest delight will be to live according to his word. A time in which there's actually not going to be the struggle in our conscience or in our hearts. Should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Should I do what's right? Should I do what's wrong? You know, tax day comes tomorrow, right? Should I lie? Shouldn't I? Should I cheat? Shouldn't I? Will I get caught or won't I? That's not the point. The point is this, in Christ, even that struggle will be gone one day. Until then, we live knowing what his word says, saying, Lord, I want to keep it. I want to be able to trust in you, that you would see me through from day to day, so that you will receive glory now. But I know ultimately you will receive all glory from all people. 
My hope for you on this resurrection day is that your life will be an extended life into eternity because you have embraced the resurrected Christ. That you will know what it is to have eternal life and abundant life because of your knowledge of the risen Savior. It's good to know he's risen. It's good to know why he had to resurrect. It's good to know that he's our our risen Savior. Let me pray. Our Lord, we do serve a risen Savior. And we thank you, O God, that you alone have the power to resurrect from the dead. And you, O God, have the power to take us to yourself and make us your own, your children. May you be glorified and praised. Amen.